Well, good morning. Uh, I just want you to know that I consider it a great privilege to be able to preach to you and to be able to share from God's Word. And today is a little bit more of a lecture, but uh, I'm grateful for this opportunity too, and I trust that the Lord has a blessing in store for you. Of the many questions that people ask, there are two questions that are so fundamental that when you're asked, you absolutely have to answer them. And you have to have the right answer, too. And the first question is, who am I? This is the foundational ontological question that every single human being has reason to ask and probably at some point in his or her life has asked, who am I? Well, missionaries and evangelists, they're armed with a response. And indeed, they have been trained to give the biblical answer, which is that every person is created in the image of God, and therefore every person is inherently bestowed with value, with dignity, with supreme worth. But it is the distortion of these values, the loss of dignity, the betrayal that comes from broken relationships that points to the spiritual reality that the image of God has been distorted in man. It has been co- it's become corrupted. This basic answer then is the lead-in to talk about the nature of sin and about the effects of Adam's fall in the garden, which is described in Genesis chapter 3. It's the loss of relationship with God that has negatively affected all other relationships too. Man in Adam is by nature now a rebel against God and in a state of strife with other people, and truly with the whole of creation. Because of sin, humans destroy more of the world than they protect. Even though God tasked us, 1, 26 to 28, to act as his kings and queens on the earth, to rule rightly, to bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness in all relationships across the face of the earth. But biblical history and even our own personal history, bear out the fact that because of the effects of sin on man's relationship to God, to others, and to the created world, not one person is born with a clear idea of who they're called to be. Sense of identity that was lost in the fall. And that lack of personal understanding about who I am invariably leads to a second fundamental question. And this one is common to all people but it can be expressed in many different ways. It is, why am I here? What is my purpose in this world? What's my function as a created being? Well, there are many ways to answer this question, just as there are many ways that it can be asked. And this morning, I want to provide a theological framework for answering this question of man's purpose. It'll help you answer your non-believing friends when they ask you, and they will ask. But it isn't just the non-believer that wants to know his purpose in the world. Believers like you and like me, we want to know this too. Why are we here? Why are we called to do what we do for Christ to start out this new year? So the access point for answering this question of man's purpose, in order to resolve in our hearts and minds that we can serve the Lord with all our effort, brings us to the theological framework, the topic of the kingdom of God. Our message today is titled, The Kingdom of God and the People of God. The Kingdom of God and the People of God. Now, it's clear from the term kingdom of God that God is the central character of this theme. He's the object for whom the kingdom exists. And that isn't lost on us. After all, there's no sphere of God's activity where he isn't exercising the rights 
that he holds as the sovereign king. He proves himself to be king in many ways. Think about it. From Genesis way to the end, Revelation 22, he proves to be the king of eternity. Genesis 1 and 2 alone reveal him as the king of creation. The entire canon reveals him as the king of history, the king of redemption, the king of souls, the king of the kings of the earth, and the high king of heaven. The prevalence of this biblical teaching that God is king over all makes the kingdom of God the central and truly the grand theme of Scripture. So we can define the kingdom of God this way, as the rule of God over his creation. That's a good enough definition, the rule of God over his creation. The kingdom motif has one key idea in mind, and that is that God, who is king over all, will be glorified in all. And so the kingdom theme centers on this larger definition, the rule of God over his creation for his glory, for his glory. Think of how the theme of the kingdom applies to Jesus, the glorious son of God. Jesus is explicitly designated as the king who reigns. He is king of Israel, king of the Jews, king of kings, king of the ages, immortal, invisible. He's the king of the nations who will reign forever and ever. In Revelation eleven fifteen, the angels proclaim this, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So it really should be no wonder to us that God's glory is an even higher theme than the other important themes that we find in scripture, such as man's salvation or even the restoration of the world. The kingdom theme is even higher than that. And that's because the focus of the kingdom theme is so clear and undistracted. God himself is the object, not me. God is. The God who existed eternally before my beginning, before our beginning in this world. He is the one glory belongs. And so that makes the kingdom of God the most satisfactory theme for answering man's biggest questions. Because who we are, what we're called to do, is rooted in God's sovereign will for his glory, rather than my will for my own. Now, our search for meaning and purpose needs to then lift higher than our own horizons. We need to see ourselves in light of God's eternal sovereign purposes. And he delights in achieving for his pleasure and his glory, his own purposes as the king of his kingdom. So with that introduction to the theme, let's consider some of the benefits of studying the kingdom of God. We want to talk about some benefits of studying the kingdom of God. Why study the kingdom of God at all? Well, I want to give you two principal reasons why it's important to understand the kingdom of God. And the first is so that you can understand the entrance requirements. So you can understand the entrance requirements into the kingdom of God. And this is where the gospel focus really comes born again. The concept of spiritual regeneration, being born again, as Ephesians 2 says, made alive together with Christ, is tied to the entrance into the kingdom of God. Spiritual birth, not physical birth, is required to get into God's kingdom. In John 3, Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And he says, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. 
You see, the Old Testament understood the spiritual birth as entirely a work of God the Spirit. Kingdom citizenship is not a physical national birthright. It is not achieved by human means. The heart needs to be divinely purified. Otherwise, even a teacher of the law like Nicodemus in John chapter 3 cannot enter into God's kingdom. Well, another kingdom entrance requirement that we need to know about, which is why we need to study the theme, is that you must become like children. You must become like children, exhibiting a childlike dependence on God. In the words of 1 Peter 2, he says, longing for the pure milk of the word. In Matthew 18 and then in Matthew 19, Jesus was very straightforward on this point. He says, unless you're converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on to say, and the kingdom, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, to those with a childlike dependence by faith on the king. So what's more, to enter into the kingdom, you must repent and believe. This is another reason why we need to study it, so we understand what it means to repent and believe. Spiritual rebirth presupposes repentance and belief in the gospel, like two sides of a coin. One must repent and turn away from sin and believe in the gospel and turn to Christ. The sinner needs to walk away from sin, and he needs to trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ in order to be saved and become a kingdom citizen. Repent and believe. This is conversion. Scripture calls sinners to respond from the heart to the announcement of the kingdom of God. John the Baptist and Jesus both proclaim, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And also repent and believe the good news, the good news for sinners. Jesus came to call sinners to repent. And now, Acts 17 tells us that God commands sinners everywhere to repent. Yet it is elsewhere stated the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And so we're to pray that perhaps God may grant repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Likewise, you're called through the gate of repentance and into a life of enduring obedience as a kingdom citizen. So we need to understand the kingdom from the side of ongoing obedience once repentance has been uh, sincere. And this is the point. You must obey the king. If you're a kingdom citizen, you obey the king. You need to put off the practices of sin. Here's a question for you. Is your life characterized by a pattern of unrepentant sin? If so, then you need to question whether or not you're born again. You need to question whether you meet filers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, all of this said, why else should we study the kingdom of God? We, we get some of the entrance requirements on the one hand, and we do need to know them, but there is a second reason that will help us answer this foundational question of our purpose on this earth. Well, we study the kingdom of God, number two, to gain a greater spiritual perspective. To gain a greater spiritual perspective. You see, once we have clarity on how to get into the kingdom, then we can consider all that lies beyond the gate of the kingdom, so to speak. 
Understanding the Bible's presentation of the kingdom of God from the past to present to the future helps give us a sense to our existence today, helps provide understanding about human suffering, helps show us how the world will actually achieve peace, and it helps us get through um, the difficult thoughts that can circle about the afterlife. And see a lot of application even to our own thoughts and beliefs. Well, our time today doesn't really permit a deep dive into the kingdom of God in the Old Testament era as it's laid out, um, or even really in the New Testament era, so we'll have a different focus. Uh, But if you are interested more in that, uh, I do a five-week summer elective for the Grace Equip program here at the church where we do a biblical walkthrough of the kingdom of God, and that gives more time for that. So pardon the shameless plug. Wanted you to know that. But for our time together, I thought it would be beneficial for us to consider the teachings of the prophets. So we'll dip mainly into the Old Testament, specifically on how God will reign on the earth after the church age. The future state of the kingdom of God is what we want to talk about now. The future state of the kingdom of God. And, and what is that? That's that future that is just for now, right out of reach. And yet, God's countdown timer for initiating that state of the kingdom could begin in a blink of an eye. See, the prophets have a lot to say about what will happen after this signless event of the rapture of the church. We learn uh, specifically about the rapture of the church and the, uh, the event at the same time of the resurrection of the dead in Christ in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. But when the prophets talk about the future state of the kingdom of God, different than how it was laid out in the Old Testament in terms of narrative history, and even in the New Testament time when the kingdom was at hand, when creation in Israel, the prophets delve into matters that for many of us just seem like esoteric mysteries. But that's not their purpose. Their concern about the future is not to uh, delve into mystery for the sake of mystery, but because they wanted to bolster the faith of their people during some of the hardest times of their lives, and it took details in order to help the most. What are some of the hardest years of the lives of those who were alive as the first readers of these prophets? They were in the shadow of exile, or they were in exile in the wicked cities of Babylon, They were under persecutions of emperors later in history, like Nero. And eventually, those future readers of these prophecies will come under the wicked rule of the Antichrist, who has yet to be revealed to human history. One thing that you'll notice as you look at these specific future prophecies that I'd like to get into is how much of a focus God puts on the land of all things specifically on the geographic territory of Israel and within it, the ethnic Jews, and also the other lands that are surrounding Israel, those pagan ethnicities with their governments and their militaries. And all of a sudden, it seems like the reader's focus isn't on the God of heaven after all. It seems like it's on a lot of human players in the physical realm of the earth. Well, What these physical earthly elements portray in these prophecies is how our sovereign God from heaven plans to work out his kingdom purposes in time and space, involving real people 
in real places, what we see is that people are very important in God's plan to glorify himself as king. And his plan is to glorify himself as king on this corrupted earth before he establishes a new earth. Reading prophecy leads us to this unmistakable conclusion that God's theater of his glory, if you will, is our literal physical world, this one in which we live. Now, last week, Abner uh, developed a survey of how God, as the foundational being of all reality, established the world as the theater of his glory. Man is at the pinnacle of all creation. He was commanded to expand God's rule across the world and to rule on God's behalf as an ambassador or a co-regent, vice-regent, even better. Now, by God's design, the failure of man to actually carry out that rule in righteousness was overcome in victory through God's Son, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And it is Jesus Christ, the king, who in the future is going to exercise a perfect reign in every way that Adam has failed. A reign that would by necessity be on this very earth that had been corrupted by the curse. When Jesus came as the perfect human king to the earth in his incarnation in what we call the first advent, he gave Sam over all nature, healing miracles, his control of nature, These were glimpses into his ultimate power to eventually restore fallen creation and to overcome sin, overcome the curse, and destroy the works of the devil. But if Jesus, who ascended into the clouds, does not return to earth to reign as God's anointed king on the same earth that Adam walked in which he failed, then we have a problem because Satan wins. Satan will have won He will have triumphed over God in the end if Christ does not come back to this world. Think about it. Think about it. This might be a new type of idea. But Adam was created in a world that was very good, according to the end of Genesis 1. But Adam's failure led to the curse, spreading to all creation, including the ground. And unless Christ returns to the curse-filled earth and reverses the curse, then he is not the last Adam in an ultimate sense. Christ must restore the world to the very good status that it lost. So he must return to our earth, not just show up on the new earth, in a new heavens and a new earth for the first time since he was here. Unless Christ reverses the curse in our world, then Satan will have destroyed permanently that very good nature of God's creation from the beginning. He will have destroyed it for good. That means we're handcuffed to Satan's evil plan so that the only way to bring goodness to the world would be to start from scratch with the new heavens and a new earth. No, no, that will not do. That's not only bad theology, it's bad logic. And it's a bad reading of scripture. The supreme king of creation cannot be overcome by his enemy. No, Jesus is going to return to this earth. This glorious God-man will return to this world. He will bind Satan and he will reign over creation from Jerusalem. And scripture specifies that it will be for a thousand years. It will be a righteous kingdom where there is no prince of the power of the air to distort that which God has called good. And we learn about this time frame right in Revelation 20. I want to read you Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, 
having the keys of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were finished. Yes, Christ is coming to rule and subdue all things under his feet. And he will do all of this before establishing the new earth. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 adds details to Revelation 20 so that we understand that when the thousand years have run their course, then Christ's kingdom on the earth is going to be transferred back to his father in order to establish this eternal state of the new heavens and the new earth. That is the final theater of God's glory. And at that time, Satan and sin will be defeated entirely, not just in abyss, but now in the lake of fire. And the curse will be forever removed. Every human will at that time exist forever in proper relationship with God, with others, and with creation, that which has been marred when the image of God got distorted in man. Man will then live in a world where No more tears are going to be shed, and light and beauty will perfectly permeate every molecule, every plant, every animal, every person. God's kingdom mission at that time, when there is the new heavens and the new earth, will be complete. Mission accomplished. Amen? This is what scripture gives us. And I hope that studying this kingdom of God theme, even as briefly as just these few minutes, can help you gain a greater spiritual perspective. This grand theme comes with a grand vision, doesn't it? Well, let's focus our attention now on that future state of the kingdom of God. Specifically, we want to see how the biblical writers describe what we've only touched upon so far, this thousand-year kingdom of Christ that begins after the countdown starts for the seven years of the Great Tribulation. And then the kingdom of Christ, this thousand years, will then transfer into the new heavens and the new earth. Well, when it comes to predictive prophecy of the kingdom, this concept of kingdom is really bound up with the concept and the necessity for restoration. Restoration is a prevalent theme within the kingdom theme. And it's no wonder Many of the future prophecies that were given at the time they were given were given to Israel and Judah while they were falling hard into bondage to sin, and they were falling hard. God inserts this ray of hope by sending them his spokespeople, his spokesmen, the prophets, who would announce that one day Messiah would reign in his glory on an earthly kingdom, and his rightful throne would be in their Jerusalem, even though at the time of most of the prophets, the city was laid desolate because of the sin of the people. So it's in the future, and it's seemingly distant even for us, but how much more for them? And yet in that distant future, Israel will be restored to a thriving status as an ethnic nation in her geographical territory, the promised land. Now, the future state of the kingdom of God begins with restoration, and that restoration then needs to be for ethnic national Israel in the land of Israel. You can't have it any other way. There are many passages that tie Israel's future prosperity to the return of Messiah to Jerusalem. 
But since we're going to study Daniel coming up here, I want to give you a bird's eye view of how Daniel's prophecies were instrumental in predicting how Messiah's future kingdom would be, and it would be established on the ruins of all other earthly kingdoms. So we're going to take a look at Daniel right now. And God reveals in that particular prophecy that the kingdom of God will be on the earth with political and geographical dimensions, just like you would expect of any kingdom. Daniel highlights that there will be a succession of major Gentile kingdoms before God establishes his kingdom on the earth. And he describes, furthermore, and we'll see this, that Messiah the king is going to be killed. Daniel says that Israel will experience great distress before this kingdom is established. Now, just to set the context as we take a quick walk through some of the passages, remember who Daniel is. He's a high-ranking statesman in Babylon during Israel's 70 years of captivity. Of course, he's in captivity too. He's a Jew. He witnessed firsthand in his world of Babylon the arrogance of the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, who lived for his own glory by day many segments of metal. This dream was really a divine vision about what will take place in the latter days in the future. How do I know that? Well, it says it in verses 28 and 29. Daniel interprets this dream as the progress of the major pagan kingdoms of human history. And as you read through, just scanning your eyes, because we are doing a quick survey here, you'll see that Babylon is what is represented by gold. We look at history and see Medo-Persia represented by the silver component. The bronze refers to Greece. Uh, Scholars understand, furthermore, that the iron represents Rome. Now, at the base of the statue, at the feet, there's a mixture of iron and clay that renders the statue unstable. Now, Daniel, in this prophecy, reveals that there's a stone, but not just any stone, an uncut stone, not of human origin, not of human fashioning, and this represents the kingdom of God. This uncut stone comes to crush the statue. It's going to smash all the kingdoms represented in it to smithereens, but it itself won't even get scratched. It's that demolition of all earthly powers that causes God's kingdom to reign as the only kingdom on the earth. It quite literally rests on the ruins of all failed geopolitical realms. They come to an end because the geopolitical kingdom of God is established on earth. That's the prophecy. Human rule is destroyed and Messiah will rule over all of the world. Now turn ahead to Daniel 7. I understand this is just a quick walkthrough, but as you look at Daniel 7, you see that Daniel himself receives a dream and visions. And these seem to match up with the vision in chapter 2 of these sequential Gentile kingdoms and then a final divine kingdom. In verses 13 and 14, out of the clouds emerges son of man figure to whom is presented dominion, glory, and a kingdom that is global in scope, eternal in duration. This heavenly scene becomes an earthly scene, as we would expect. Messiah's kingdom rule is not just a spiritual one. It becomes a global reality in the midst of the nations. 
Now we know that by virtue of Jesus' triumph over the grave, he is the king of his kingdom in a spiritual sense. That's, that's true of him now, but his full reign includes the physical sense. And that doesn't begin until he comes with the clouds, as you read in verse 13, to reign over the entire earth. In fact, Psalm 110 depicts that. Depicts how even now the Father has given King Jesus all authority over the kingdom. But verse 1 of Psalm 110 says he must sit in heaven until when? Until the appointed day of wrath, which is determined for executing judgment on the nations of the earth, which you see in 10 verses 5 and 6. Now back in Daniel, move a little forward. Let's look at chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is given insight not only into the second coming of Messiah, but also into the first advent as well, which for him is still future history. In verses 24 to 27 of Daniel 9, the angel Gabriel revealed that before the anointed one comes on the clouds, something else happens. He's going to be cut off and have nothing. Now that's a Hebrew depiction of destruction. That's a Hebrew description of this apparent inglorious defeat of Messiah. How could that even be possible? Well, Daniel is portraying how in Jesus' first coming, he came as king to his people, and his people rejected his kingdom, and he's killed. We learn this in the Gospels. Even the destruction of Israel's temple was predicted in verse 26, and that was also predicted in history. So Daniel is clear that Messiah must be rejected. He must suffer. He must die before he establishes his eternal kingdom. And he also adds that Israel is going to suffer before receiving the blessings of the kingdom. You see all of this in that passage. Now, turn ahead to Daniel 12, last chapter. In verse 1, Daniel predicts a time of distress worse than anything that Israel has ever experienced in their history. If you're someone who would like to think that perhaps the Great Tribulation is either happening now or has happened at some time in the past, then you need to read Daniel 12.1. Predicts a time of distress worse than anything that Israel has ever experienced in their history. But out of this time of trial, this Great Tribulation, emerge saints, emerge these saints that are shining, verse 3 says, like the stars forever and ever, and they will experience rescue from... What is this depicting? It's depicting the bodily erection of those martyrs during the tribulation. We call them the tribulation martyrs, tribulation saints. They die before the time of trouble ends. Their blood is shed. They're with the Lord. But they are given this great enduring glory um, because the Lord has saved them. Now in verse 7, and then down in verses 11 and 12, if you look at both of those, Daniel gives the exact number of years, of months, and days for the tribulation. And he gives that so that we understand the time needed uh, for Christ to then inaugurate his 1,000-year kingdom. And this is quite a vision to cap off the book of Daniel, isn't it? It's, it's leading us to that hope of Christ's return down to the day. Now, there are other minor prophets as we skim through the rest of the Old Testament, like Hosea, Joel, Amos, and they also bring out the kingdom theme in their writings. 
And what they'll do, similarly to Daniel, they'll reveal that this millennial reign of uh, is going to cancel out Israel's millennia-long rebellion because God has intended that his people be met by their king with universal blessings for the whole world, to receive no more discipline, no more curse, just blessings. Now, the prophets always go back to the fact that God made unbreakable covenant promises with Israel. So it shouldn't surprise us that they would expect his glory to radiate out from that place of blessing, that seat of blessing, Jerusalem. Quite literally, their Jerusalem. Not even the new Jerusalem. The one that they know. That then becomes the center of the world. And it is from Jerusalem that when Christ comes back, he will pour out his blessing, not just to them, but to every nation on the face of the earth. When Christ returns in the future, Israel and the people of Israel will function as that glorious vehicle for the salvation and blessing of the nations. You're kind of like me. You're also like all of us, and you're facing some kind of a trial. Scripture always points to trials of various kinds. You're never alone, never unique in your troubles. But what can happen is your focus is on your trouble. And then you just move to the next trouble. And when you get out of that, you find the next trouble. And your focus is always there. And as believers, we do struggle under the weight of this sinful world. And that makes us a lot like these original readers of these prophecies. But like them, we need to crave more and more of the glorious images that would permeate our vision of what this kingdom of God is and what it will be. Now, I imagine most of you here, you're fully invested already in the idea that King Jesus will triumph over evil and reign on this earth. You don't necessarily have a problem with that, although I understand that there are different theological views that some of our people have. What I'm interested right now is to help you connect the head knowledge, what you do accept, with the heart knowledge, that level that you still need to accept. You need these very prophecies of the future kingdom of God, specifically the millennium, to fill in the blind spots in your knowledge, to bring out color, three-dimensional vision of what Scripture reveals to you so that you add to the theology that you already believe with the beauty of the reality of what is coming. So what I'd like to do is press into this kingdom of God theme a little bit more and ask a question that is intended to be intensely practical and personal to each one of us here. The question is, what's life going to be like in the coming kingdom of God? Does that sound practical and personal to you? Well, it should be. If you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, if, if those entrance requirements have been met, then you are promised by God to live and reign with Christ in his coming kingdom. So let me briefly list some of the key descriptions in Scripture about life in this coming kingdom of God, specifically the millennium, the millennial kingdom, which follows the Great Tribulation. And I want you to take note, because this is intensely personal for each one of us as we think of the future, when we think of our future. Now, in Revelation 19 and 20, the Apostle John proclaimed that Jesus is going to return to rule over his earthly kingdom for 1,000 years. And he will do so before ushering in this final form of the kingdom, the eternal state that he turns over for his father to institute. Now, in the second half 
of Revelation 19, what do we see? The verse that says we see the one who is called faithful and true. What is he going to do? He's going to judge the world. He's going to wage war against the world, and he's going to do so righteously. He will judge and wage war in righteousness. And we who are in this room that are saved, that are in his spiritual kingdom now, we will be among those armies of heaven that follow in his fiery trail, that come down to earth to rule and reign and do battle with him. So you move forward then to Revelation 20, and you get those details that we already read of the judgment of Satan and this reign of peace that lasts for 1,000 years. And that will be our reign of peace with Christ, our King. Now, this millennial reign of Messiah is characterized in Scripture as this time of international peace, time of harmony. It's a fully restored national Israel that will righteously serve Yahweh in a protected land, a a planet that is free from natural disasters, free from disease, free from threats of all kind, and it's not even the new earth yet. This is what Messiah will accomplish when he comes to rule and reign from the center of the earth, from Jerusalem. Now, the world today during this church age certainly does not match this vision of the prophets to see this earthly reign of Messiah and and start to sync up prophecy. In that day, all of the biblical covenants will find their most beautiful expression. Think about it. The mandate given to Adam to rule the earth is going to be fulfilled by whom? By Christ. By who else? By his people. By you. The covenant that God made with David is going to be fulfilled when Christ takes his throne in Jerusalem as the ultimate Davidic king. He's not there yet, but he will be. The covenant made to Abraham, which is universal in scope, is going to be fulfilled because Christ, who is Abraham's seed, if you think of uh, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, is going to bring blessing to all the nations as promised from where? From the promised land. This is all given in Scripture as a fulfillment. Revelation 5, 9 to 10, indicates that those who are ransomed from every tribe and language and people and nation will reign on the earth. Now, Revelation 20, just after the passage that we read earlier in verse 4, says that these saints are going to reign from their own thrones so that they can enact judgment as kings and queens of the nations of the earth. So in the millennial kingdom of Christ, what Israel will experience and what the, the world radiating out there will, from there will experience is political blessing. All nations are going to enjoy world peace. And it's all going to happen under one world government. Well, not by Antichrist, but by the real Christ, Christ the King. And there are going to be worldwide physical blessings of all kinds for everyone. I want to give you a quick little breakdown of the conditions of the world during the millennium that are described in Scripture. I'm just going to rip through some of these quickly. Nature is going to be restored. Nature will be restored. This comes back. Isaiah 32 reveals that the thorns and the thistles that characterize the difficulties of the ground cease to be a problem. 
all of the terrain of the earth becomes amazingly productive to the point that the wilderness is described as a field. Isaiah 32 goes on to say the field is described as a forest. And the oxen and donkey roam free because their services are no longer needed. Can you imagine? Isaiah 35 Verse 1 says this, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. And the readers of this prophecy know those lands and rejoice in the idea that Christ will do that on their earth. Not the next one, but also the next one. Okay. What's more, think about the animal kingdom. Within Christ's kingdom, we still think about the animal kingdom. They will no longer suffer in their circle of life the way that we're. This is 11, uh, chapter 11 parallels here Isaiah 65, verse 2, that depicts that there's going to be complete harmony in the animal world, as well as with animals and mankind that even now keep a distance out of terror on both sides. And this is, I mean, even that concept of world peace goes way beyond what the liberals are trying to pay for, right? That's incredible. People have no idea what kind of systemic peace there will be in every stratum of this uh, world when Christ comes back. And so let's talk about then the near complete reversal of the curse as it then applies to us, as it applies to our human bodies. Zechariah 8, when we studied this, you read verses 4 and 5, which distinguish the young from the old. If you go to Zechariah 8, 4 and 5, you see distinction between young and old, between not just ages, but genders. And it says, thus says Yahweh of hosts, old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of age. And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in its streets. Did you know that that's a description of the millennium? I'll tell you why. The young are going to run and laugh freely in the streets, while the aged, notice the distinction, will sit and talk with staff in hand, which they need because physical decay is still operative, but it's extremely slowed. It's not stopped in the millennium. We don't have passages that describe the death of the righteous during the millennium, and ostensibly they may last a thousand years. We do have the death of the wicked referred to, and even they live such long lives that if they were to die at 100 years for some anarchic-level rebellion against Messiah, then it would be considered an infant death, as if they had been cursed by God to die at 100 years old. So one of the key distinctions between the millennial kingdom and the eternal state is this very concept of the slowed but still present decay of the human body. Decay is still a reality here in Zechariah 8. So we know that the passage at least is not referring to the new earth. And it is certainly not referring to this state of the world. It will be true when Christ comes back. Now in the millennium, this extreme length of life, this perpetuated health, It continues on, but unfortunately, as life goes on, so does the curse just to that small effect at its all-time minimum. And so despite all of the great advancements against the effects of the curse, the final defeat of sin is still a future hope 
for millennium citizens. They will hope in their framework what we in our framework hope as well. And that will happen when the kingdoms transition from our world to the new world, as you read in 1 Corinthians 28. I referenced that a little earlier. Now, think of other characteristics of the millennium that we can draw from Scripture. Human culture. What do we talk about human culture in terms of the millennium? Well, it was always intended to be beautiful, but it was corrupted by the fall. We know that. Uh, The millennium is going to be the beginning of a new, fruitful era of human flourishing to the glory of Christ. Yeah, we wish for human flourishing in the church age. There's a lot of books written about the flourishing of culture, the flourishing of humanity, of society. But that is not promised for this church age. It can be a good endeavor within the right priorities of ministry unto the Lord, and yet... What is promised in terms of human flourishing and cultural uh, growth and development is promised when Christ reigns as the ultimate Adam and that Davidic king when he comes back to Jerusalem. He is going to bless all the nations of the earth. He is going to come as the king in his beauty. And that is where culture changes worldwide. In that day, Isaiah 60 proclaims that everyone from everywhere is going to adorn Israel with beauty. Look at verse 3, Isaiah 60, verse 3. Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Verse 5. The abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. In verses 6 to 7. Israel is going to be full of camels, flocks of sheep for sacrifice in honor of Christ, who sacrificed himself for them. In verses 9 through 17, still in Isaiah 60. We see silver, gold, the finest of natural resources. Those are going to be brought to Jerusalem in order to make God's temple astoundingly beautiful. And kings from the nations will come to serve Israel with great joy. This is human flourishing, where the world comes to its center. And at the center of Jerusalem, they're coming to the temple to adorn it. Haggai 2.7, if you remember in Haggai chapter 2. When we studied that, it describes this wealth of culture and the will shake all the nations and they will come with me or I'm sorry, and they will come with the desirable things of all nations and I will fill this house with glory, says Yahweh of hosts. So for those thousand years, all hearts will be turned toward the king of those that are saved during that time. They're not all saved. There is one final rebellion when Satan is released from the pit, and you learn about that in Revelation 20. What does that signify? That the curse is still operative because the human heart is still depraved. And every person in the millennium, even in the face of Christ sitting on his throne, needs to accept the gospel, needs to put their trust in the king, even in the face of astounding human flourishing. And we know this because in Revelation 20, it says that when Satan is released at the end of a thousand years, it lasts long, they're going to be destroyed in a fireball. Pretty great. But what you see is for those that are saved, that live those thousand years, their hearts are going to be turned toward the king, not toward themselves. They're not interested in entertainment to escape reality. The reality is not found in earthly pleasures. It's found in Christ. 
And they know it. They see him. They find their total satisfaction in God. This is an image of that millennial kingdom worship when Christ reigns from his throne. Now, like I mentioned, 1 Corinthians 15, when all of the covenant promises are fulfilled and that ultimate enemy, death, is defeated forever, 1 Corinthians 15.24 says, very simply, then comes the end. Then comes the end. That's the end of the world in which we now live. After that comes the transition from the son's rule of this earth to the rule of the eternal uh, kingdom, this eternal state of the new heavens and new earth where the son reigns with the father and the spirit presently on the earth. Now that is quite a vision of the kingdom of God, isn't it? We need that vision. Now, just as we wrap things up, we are looking toward that day when Christ will reign from Jerusalem. But we still have our lives to live in the spiritual state of the kingdom today. We need to strive toward that goal that's set out by Christ. Listen to Matthew six thirty three, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You know what we're called to do? We're called to act like the spiritual kingdom citizens that we are. And we need to act that way now while we are in this church age today. We need to labor in this dark world according to the light of Christ who is within us, although we are waiting for hate out from his throne. Even now we are seated in the spiritual realm with him. We are united with Christ. We are citizens of heaven. We are sojourners on the earth nonetheless. These are all phrases that describe us from the New Testament. Well, you know as well as I do that one day I won't have to seek out his kingdom and his righteousness. I'm not even going to have to try. I'm going to be transformed into glory. And I thank God for that reality. But for now, what does 1 Thessalonians 2.12 say? I, like you, need to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So, how should we live now as kingdom citizens who await this glorious revealing of our king on the earth? We're caught in this tension and we have some implications here from what we've seen. So let me give you just a few implications about this future reality of our citizenship as we look forward to our return in that fiery trail of Christ coming to dominate his enemies. Let's think about what that means for us today. First, it means you wait for the blessed hope. You wait with hope for rapture. You wait for him to take us away, which is at his time. It's a signless event. You can't find it on your calendar. It is up to him to do at his appropriate time. And until then, you continue growing in holiness. That's the second point. You wait for our blessed hope, and you continue growing in holiness while you wait. And you prepare to die, ready to serve Christ in a new way once you're transformed. Once you are absent from the body, you are still present with the Lord, and you are present with the Lord in such a new way. Will you live in that way as the kingdom citizen in a new reality? We're going to strive 
during this morning, to be those citizens that our king would look at and say, like he says in Matthew 25 and Luke 19, you know it, well done, good and faithful slave. So let's circle back to even where we began. How are you going to answer the non-believer? The non-believer that asks you why he or she is here on the earth. What, what is the purpose of being here? Tell him, tell her that they are here to glorify God. Call them to it. Beg and plead with the sinner to renounce the slavery to sin and become a slave of this beautiful king. And if that sinner repents and says, yes, I will do that. I will find my purpose in Christ. Then exhort him even further. Do like the apostle Peter does in 2 Peter 1, 10 and 11. He calls everybody who professes this Christ as king in their lives to pursue holiness. Add virtue upon virtue. You still have this life in front of you. He wrote this. Be all the more diligent to make your calling and your choosing sure. For in doing these things, these Christian virtues and this pursuit of holiness, you'll never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Let's pray. Lord, we are overwhelmed with this vision we see in bright, vivid colors and great depth so many incredible prophecies of what you will do in the future. It is overwhelming, and all we can say is thank you for revealing to us the heights of your goodness toward us. And it goes so much further because there's still this element of mystery in everything that we read. And yet, Lord, your goal is to get your glory in this world in preparation for the next. Thank you that you, the eternal king, will be eternally glorified and that you would receive that ascription of glory, that worship from us. Oh Lord, what blessed and free slaves we are. Lord, I would ask that each person here examine their hearts that each person look to Christ and see if he truly is beautiful in their eyes, to see if they look at this promise of world peace and see that only Christ can accomplish it, and that they would look to that peace and long for it and see that anything short of repentance and belief in your good news of your kingdom is for them sheer terror Absolute devastation, but not only grand in scope, it's grand in vision, and it needs to be grand in our eyes. Cause us to live into this reality of being your kingdom citizens for those of us that are saved, and add many more people to your kingdom, even today, even in this moment. I pray this through Christ, our King. Amen.